If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hamilton Today here on 900 CHML. A glorious day out there. My goodness, for late October, it is primo out there. Let's hope this hangs around till, I don't know, Christmas, Valentine's Day. I'm okay with that. I'm okay. I don't think it's going to happen, but I'd be okay with that. As I say, welcome to the show. Scott Radley in for Scott Thompson for the next few days. Glad you're able to join us today. Question before we get rolling on a lot of things. I saw this story and um, I'll just throw it out there too. Has Halloween gotten out of control? We're heading towards Halloween. Have we reached the point where Halloween, Halloween decorations have gotten too far? And I'll tell you why I asked the question. There was a story last week that we read. I can't remember where it was in the state somewhere. A guy had collapsed and died on his front yard. I mean, it was a very sad story. He had literally had a heart attack and fallen on his front yard. When his lawn service came to mow the lawn, they mowed around him thinking he was part of a Halloween decoration. He stayed there for four days before someone said, that's Jed. That's not a decoration. Well, now in Utah, uh, officials in a town down there have had to ask a a household to please remove the decoration they built of pole dancing skeletons. (laughs) It's not appropriate, they say. It is not appropriate to have a pole dancing skeleton showing off for other skeletons who are sitting enjoying the show. It's for kids. Blasphemy. It might be. It might be. Well, Scott, on that note, what is the most uh, far gone Halloween decoration you've seen? Like in Hamilton, in Burlington, where I saw one on social media yesterday. I don't know where it was. And it was a design. Again, it was a mannequin that looked like a safe had fallen on his head. And the person had poured about 15 gallons of theater blood on the ground. I guarantee you the police are being called by somebody looking at that saying, what has gone on here? Anyway, let me tell you what's coming up on the show today. Not just Halloween stuff, though. We're happy to talk about that. Uh, we will be following up on what happened with Hamilton Center MPP Sarah Jama yesterday. Where does this go from here and what kind of representation does Hamilton Center get or deserve or can they demand anything different now that they don't really have a voice at Queen's Park? We will get into that. We're going to talk about skimpflation. You've heard about shrinkflation, inflation, probably other flations. We're talking about skimpflation. Today, we'll get into that and what that means to you. Unearthing Hamilton history, you know, as they begin digging up for the LRT. Here's betting we are going to find some pieces of our city's history that are going to be fascinating. We'll talk about what that may be, what that may already be. If you are a fan of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, you may want to enjoy the next little while because if polls are to be believed, this isn't going to last certainly beyond the next election. Things are looking very bleak for the prime minister. Uh, But is this something that, you know, we're a year and a half out? No problem. Going to bounce back. This will never last. We will find out where that's going. Canadians are admitting they have no idea how to distinguish AI, artificial intelligence, fake news. They just can't do it, apparently. That is a huge problem. We will talk about that one. There's a bus strike potentially coming up. We'll explore what that will mean to you. The Hamilton Sports Hall of Fame, the class of 2023, including Bob Young, owner of the Ticats, and former Ticat Ellison Kelly, and retired soccer legend Melissa Tancredi, and the all-time 
columnist, sports columnist in this city, Bob Hanley, and Jessica Ricosi, well, who will be joining us in the five o'clock hour, uh, all going in. We'll be talking about the rights of employers as it comes to people posting social media, kind of the Sarah Jama situation. If you're an employer and your employee posts something that you say does not jibe with your company's position, do you have any rights to force them to take it down? Could they be fired for this? You know, a lot of people, we always see on people's social media, especially on Twitter, people say, these opinions are mine and don't reflect my company. Here's a little hint. As far as I've been told, that doesn't get you out of it. You don't, you don't get a magic wand to say, my opinions don't reflect my company, so you can't possibly hold this against me. And I believe you can. We'll find out. But I don't think that that's a magic special cloak of invisibility that you have that gets you out of any trouble. We'll talk about that. So much more, so much more on the show today. But as I say, as we get started, let us know your thoughts. Has Halloween, have Halloween decorations just gone too darn far? I I mean, when I was, I'm trying to think when I was a kid now, it's not, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm getting up there, but I'm not old. I don't count myself as old yet. When I, when I was, you know, when I was trick-or-treating, we didn't have to dance around the horse-drawn carriages to go from door to door every four miles down the road. I mean, I'm not going that far back. No, it was the campfire by the mountains. No, it was, but I'm trying to think if the, <laughs> there were, there were haunted houses, but they were all kind of fun, lighthearted haunted houses. Now people, I mean, some of the haunted houses, there's one in the States. I have to look this one up. There is a haunted house in the States that you get paid if you stay in it for a certain period of time because it's so terrifying and you have to sign off on a bunch of waivers. I can't imagine if you know you're going into a haunted house that people have made specifically to scare you, you just stick it out. Why would you leave? They're not going to chop your head off. They're not going to actually hurt you. I don't get it, but apparently it's so frightening that very, very, very few people can stay in for any period of time. And where is this asking maybe for a birthday present from my mom? You know what? Look it up. <laughs> I, I, my, can, I'm thinking Kentucky, Tennessee, something like that, if I recall correctly, but it's, it's become kind of legend and you do, not everybody gets to go in and it's, you go in for hours. Like it's an hours long thing where they try to essentially mentally torture you. Which sounds like a whole lot of fun, doesn't it? Oh, so much fun, Scott. So much fun. So much fun. We were talking the other day. so much fun. I missed it. (laughs) The idea of going into a haunted house that is so scary that you have to sign a waiver. I I don't have any of that desire. No? To, that's that's Jen McQueen, by the way. I don't have any desire to watch scary movies where people jump out from behind doors. Dave and I were talking about scary movies, apparently Insidious. Have you ever seen that? That's supposed to be the scariest thing ever. And I watched a trailer for it. It didn't. It just looks like The Exorcist and just it's it's a, it's a scary movie and it's a good movie series, but it's the scariest thing of all time of, of like modern horror, especially. No, no, no I, I'll stick with the scariest thing I want to watch these days is Frasier reruns. Oh, <laughs> it looks so and, good. Well, the new one. Yes, it does. And we're just watching the old ones for now and they're still good. Tara Jama, MPP for Hamilton Center, as we know, yesterday... Her party leader kicked her out of the party, out of the caucus, and the Ontario legislature censured her for her comments regarding what happened with Hamas in Israel. We've now had a little over 24 hours to take a breath and 
think about this and let it breathe a little bit and figure out what we really think about this. Duff Conacher is the co-founder of Democracy Watch who joins us now. Duff, how are you today? Well, how are you? Good. So with that amount of time, with a day to, you know, sort of let it settle and and give it some more thought, uh, two questions. What are your thoughts? Do you agree with the censure? And do you agree with Merritt Stiles kicking Sarah Jama out of the NDP caucus? Uh, Well, first of all, with regard to the censure motion, um, the the key thing is I'm just going to stick to the the principles of how this is done, and uh, as opposed to specifically uh, the what she said in her statements and other people's statements. Even if the Ontario Legislature had clear rules that limit what an MPP can say outside of the legislature including through public statements and posts on social media, those rules can't violate the charter right to freedom of expression. And those rules and all rules of the legislature must be, really should be enforced in an independent and partial way. If not, it violates the right of MPPs to a fair process for deciding whether they have violated any of the rules of the legislature. And So the system of MPPs voting and enforcing rules that they say apply to other MPPs, that can never work. That's a kangaroo court because the judgments of MPPs are tainted by politics and partisanship and usually ignore evidence and rights and rules. And so they shouldn't be making these decisions about each other, um, especially not based on uh, statements that are made outside of the legislature for which the legislature doesn't have, as far as I know, any rules. Mm. I do uh, believe in it. We were talking about this the other day. Last night we were talking about this and I, and I am close to a free speech absolutist, maybe not exactly, but, but nudging towards that. And so I have difficulty with this censure, but the biggest thing is I think that having opened this door now, I think we are going to see this now used by all kinds of parties in all different ways that we didn't anticipate. Well, the door was actually opened uh, in February 2022 because the Ontario legislature censured Randy Hillier for social media posts back in February 2022. Right. So that was really the precedent. He didn't go to court over that. Um, There may be a court case in this situation. And I think in this situation, the courts would rule that the legislature can't penalize an MPP for saying something outside of the legislature or posting it on social media if it's legal to say what was said or posted. And as a result, the speaker should not have allowed the censure motion to come to a vote and the censure must be withdrawn because it's a violation of the charter. So what about the, okay, so, uh, and that's, I think that's a very fair point and, uh, and you've made that very clearly and it's good. Uh, what would you say about the NDP and Merritt Stiles decision to excise Sarah Jama from the party? What do you think about that? I don't know all of the the facts. You have claims on different sides about, you know, negotiations were going on. Um, they weren't being done in public and the leader felt there wasn't enough cooperation there and that the trust had, with other colleagues in the caucus had been violated. Um, I think the caucus should be making this decision, not the leader. The caucus should decide who sits in caucus. And that's the way the system should be across the country for every party. Um, at the federal level, under the uh, this thing that was called the Reform Act, 
the caucus was given this power if they chose to to after each election to seize that power from the leader and every party after each election federally has to essentially choose whether they want to give the caucus the right to control who's in the caucus that's the way it should work though it's the decision for the whole caucus not just for the leader mm-hmm. um and that's so that's one thing i think that was done in a wrong way although uh, uh merit styles the ndp leader may be able to counter what I just said and say, actually, I talked to all our caucus members and right. we all agreed on it. But she didn't say that. She said, I'm kicking Sarah Jam out of the caucus. And, and, and one of the, it was only her decision. And one of the things about that is, uh, and I, uh, on your first point about the censure, I'm, I'm in agreement on this one. I look at this and I think if anybody essentially, if their boss said, take this post down, it doesn't jibe with our position and you told them basically by posting it, by pinning it to your social media and not doing that, you're basically giving them the finger. I'm not surprised that a boss would get rid of that person in any line of work. Yeah. Although she added another post, right? Which, which was to address the concern that the right. first post was one-sided and again, I'm not going to get into the details about right. what exactly was said and what the second statement said. Um, but, uh, and so, you know, there is a question there. Is it reasonable to say you have to, which is what the censure motion says as well. You have yeah. to retract, delete something you've said and post it. Duff, we have, we have 30 seconds. I hate to, to whittle you down to 30 seconds, but if you live in Hamilton Center right now, you essentially now have a representative who's not really able to do much representing. They have no voice. They have no party. They have no power. Is there any mechanism that anyone in Hamilton Center has to ask, request, demand, whatever, that something be done about this? Yeah, I think the request should be to the speaker to really examine whether this whole motion was in order uh, and whether the, the MPPs can decide that something that another MPP said outside the legislature is is justifiable for them to then censure that MPP. I don't think there's any rules that allow it. I think it's against the charter and I think the courts would rule that and order the censure withdrawn. You, there's limits on what parliamentarians can do to each other. You, yes, you can sanction them for lying in parliament if they're convicted of a crime or other legal violation, but to penalize them for saying something that you don't like outside the legislature, uh, I don't think I don't think the, the courts would uphold that. That is Duff Conacher. He is the co-founder of Democracy Watch. Always love having you on. Duff, thanks for doing this. Thanks very much. It is Hamilton today. We're not trying to bring you down, but... Over the years, over the months, we've talked about inflation. You know all about that. We've talked about shrinkflation. I'm sure you're aware of that now. We've talked about stagflation, which has nothing to do with a deer. And we are now dealing with something called skimpflation. What in the world is skimpflation? How many more flations can there possibly be? Well, for now, there's this one. Let's bring in Dr. Sylvain Charlebois. He is the professor of food distribution and policy and the director of the Agri-Food Ag- Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. How are you today? Good. How are you? I'm okay, but I'm running out of tolerance for further flations here. We've got too many flations going <laughs> on right now. What in I the know. world is skimpflation? Well, skimpflation is when uh, companies reformulate a product using uh, cheaper ingredients, basically. That's what it is. So, so in other words, they're putting in uh, ingredients like water, uh, cheaper palm oil to uh, replace uh, more 
more expensive oils and things like that um, for a couple of reasons. One, of course, it's it's economically uh, motivated, but uh, also sometimes it's about compliance. Uh, they want to uh, perhaps reduce the amount of sugar, sodium, uh, or um, fat in their product. And uh, as a result of all that, they'll probably take away take out uh, an, an expensive ingredient and put in a, a more affordable ingredient. Is there any way to know that you're buying a, a familiar product that suddenly has changed other than by really studying the ingredients if somehow you had memorized what was on there before? Uh, I mean, basically, you need to uh, remember uh, the ingredients. It's actually not as easy to Perceive than shrinkflation. Shrinkflation is very much about uh, reducing quantities uh, and, and keeping prices the same. And a lot of people will notice, especially with Halloween, they'll see that candies are just way smaller. That's shrinkflation. It's easy to look. It's easy to see. Right. But skimflation is not easy because uh, you have to look at the ingredient list. You have to. And, who's, and, and who has ever memorized that? I mean, if I buy my favorite exactly. product, I, I, I rarely look at the ingredients anyway, let alone memorize them. Yeah, you know, exactly. So it's, it's really tough. Uh, it's really tough to, but, but people, uh, you know, they're starting to come out. Uh, so, this, so CTV actually did a, a story last night. And since then, I've actually been receiving a lot of emails from people who've actually experienced skimflation because they feel that the, product they buy they love has changed in terms of taste color um you know uh flavors uh, the look the the texture so there's lots of things that really has led the people to say well maybe skinflation is is happening here does this provide okay so we can see the downside to this i think i don't think it's too difficult to understand what that is is there an opportunity for different companies to though look at this and point to we are now or like to really push the fact that we're using top quality ingredients and we're not using skimpflation. I can't even say it. Skimpflation. <laughs> well, I mean, at the end of the day, it's, it's about making the products more competitive. The, the challenge that the, that companies have now is that people talk to each other through social media and uh, media uh, is, is looking into some of these matters. So it's becoming more and more difficult to hide. Um, people will start talking. I mean, uh, there are some cases out there that are now very public uh, that have been subject to some skimflation. That's not good for a brand. I mean, if you if you all of a sudden you realize, oh my goodness, my product that I love is no longer the same, and now I know why. People may walk away. So manufacturers will have to be a little bit careful in terms of what they do with their products. Yeah. And, and I mean, obviously we understand things are very tight for a lot of people for money right now. We get that for sure. But I do wonder if people are willing to pay more for the quality still, or, I mean, we've long sort of been pushing towards being a dollar store economy where I just want something I can get it for the least money. But I wonder if people are now going to be willing to pay more to get that good stuff. Well, I, I think uh, I would. I, I actually, I would throw it around. I would basically say that people are willing to pay more for consistency. Mm, okay. So, so if they're if they're committed to a brand, if they're committed to a product, they don't expect that product to change and be charged the same. And so, I, I think a lot of people 
feel uh, betrayed uh, because nobody told them. It's not illegal what's happening, but I actually think it's even worse than shrinkflation. Uh, I know shrinkflation annoys a lot of people because you're getting less uh, for the same amount of money, but skinflation changes the actual product. Yes. I mean, it yes. changes the taste and 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 the allure and the texture and what well, is sneakier. Like, there's it's, there's some room for betrayal for sure. It's sneakier because again, shrinkflation. I walk through the mall, and I think you and I have talked about this before. I've walked through the grocery store, and you look at a bag of chips, and it's way smaller than it used to be. I can see that. I can then make the decision on whether I want to buy it, whether I think it's still worth the money. This is way sneakier. Yeah, it is. It is. It is very sneaky because again, it it, w- it could take years before people actually notice. And sometimes they feel, oh, it's because I'm sick. I got I got a cold. My taste buds uh, aren't necessarily working <laughs> properly. So they're blaming themselves. Whereas shrinkflation, it's pretty obvious, and you can't really blame yourself. It's just a matter of just arithmetic. But in this case, your senses are troubled by a misleading strategy, I guess. Do, do you think, and this is really complicated because companies, I'm sure, not just for this reason, companies will change ingredients for any number of reasons over the years, but should there be some requirement that there be a mark that it's changed if something has changed or is that just too out there? Um, it's too out there, at least for Canada. Uh, again, there's nothing illegal, but if if I were to regulate a flation of some sort, that would be it. That absolutely, that would be it. I would certainly would encourage um, the CFIA and Health Canada to force companies to label changes in formulation for two reasons. One, uh, well. Tastes may have changed. It's not the same product. It's not the same product anymore. Right. You know, it's not. It's not a new and improved quote unquote. It's. It's. It's less and devalued. Well, <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's not much of an advertising and, slogan. And the other thing is that you may actually end up putting an ingredient that people may be allergic to, or you never know. I mean, you're basically adding something. People are just assuming it's the same product, but it has changed. And and there are public health risks. I don't think that companies are taking risk because they do test before they actually market these products. They test these products a lot, but, but you don't want to, uh, mislead. And, uh, and I think that's conflation. There's something there that, uh, that needs to be addressed. Uh, before we let you go. So as I said, off the top, there's inflation, shrinkflation, stagflation, skimpflation. Are there other flations that we'll be talking about in the next little while? Funflation. <laughs> Funflation? Huh? Funflation. This is—it's a, it's a term I heard out of the U.S. Funflation is when you're running out of money and you can't have fun anymore. We'll we'll pick that one up another time. But there, there, <laughs> that's the worst one of all. That that that's yeah, no, it is. Worse. That's the worst it's one worse, of all. Absolutely. Uh, that is Dr. <laughs> Sylvain Charlevoix from the AgriFood Analytics Lab at Dalhousie. Thanks as always for the time. Take care. There is some digging being done in anticipation preparation for the eventual LRT construction. And they have discovered old HSR tracks under the road. Now I'm kind of surprised that back when the HSR was paved over, they didn't pull those out, but maybe they are too. I don't know. Let me bring in Dennis Parison. He's the senior project manager, subsurface LRT with the city of Hamilton. Dennis, how are you today? 
Good, good. How are you? I'm great. Did you expect you were going to find this stuff, or were you also surprised when those tracks were there? Um, there was an anticipation that we would perhaps find them being kind of in the downtown core or close to the downtown core and some of the historical findings that we've had in the past, um, being one in particular at Ottawa and Maine, where we had done some work there six, seven years ago, and we encountered the, the rail tracks then. So there was a small anticipation that we were going to, and obviously we did. What, how far down are they? Cause that wouldn't they be uh, just under the surface? They're probably, um, I'll do it both in inches and and centimeters for you. So it's probably about 12 centimeters below the surface or call it about five inches or so somewhere in there. Okay. So they just literally, when they were done, they just paved over it. Yep. They certainly did. Okay. So if they, if this is here and you say that they found some others before, What's the chances, would you think, and we don't know, it's a hypothetical, but what are the chances that as this project goes along, and it's a, it's a long project, so there's an awful lot of road that will be dug up for this, that we're going to find not just stuff like tracks, but other things that may be pieces of our history? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely, Scott. Yes. I mean, uh, tracks I'm anticipating, I'm anticipating finding, um, there's a potential of wood water mains, which we've had, we've had encountered in the past in other projects. Um, I am banking on the fact that, yeah, we will probably find some very interesting historical things as we move along. Do we have at this point, I don't know if this has ever been thought of, do we have anyone from a historical society or the, I don't even know who, I don't even know where you would look. Do we have someone with a historic background sort of on standby to say, Hey, can we give you a call? We just found something. Uh, we do, we, we do have consultants that we can use that will come out and verify what it is that we found. Um, in the event that we do, we'll certainly have them, he or she come out and, you know, have a look at it, tell us what they think it is and if it's of importance or not. Um, but yes, we, we're definitely expecting that and we're, and we are prepared for that. I hate to even ask the next question, but is, is there anything that could be found that would bring construction or digging to a halt, at least for a while? Is, is there, are there any things that might be sensitive that would be a real problem if you found it? Um, in some past projects, we have found bones, uh, and when that happens, we automatically stop the job site. We, we phone the police, they come in, they complete an investigation. And until we get clearance as to what those bones may or may not be, uh, the work will obviously stop in that area. And then, but the, the good news or good part of it for us anyway, is because of the size of the project that if we were to hit a pocket of concern, it won't necessarily stop the entire job. We can move forward in a different zone or a different location, carry on with the work until we can get some clearance on what we found. All right. So now I'm starting to think, you know what, we got a chance here. Jimmy Hoffa. Jimmy Hoffa, and all of a sudden this project becomes really interesting. Let's see if you can... <laughs> but is there any... You never know. Well, you know what? I mean, you won't be finding Jimmy Hoffa, but it, I don't know that I would be absolutely shocked beyond any words if there was something with some questionable past that was stumbled upon at one point. I mean, you know, this city has had an interesting history in this regard along the way. It wouldn't, you know, it doesn't mean it happened anytime recently, but I wouldn't be falling out of my chair with shock if we found something that made everyone go, hmm. 
Oh, no, absolutely. No, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of excited for it, to be honest with you, if we do find something like that. Because, I mean, to bring up a piece of history and, and find it and save it, uh, that's a wonderful thing to me. Well, it is. I mean, it really, it makes this... Uh, it, a construction project this long, um, you know, I don't want to say it's monotonous. It's, it's, you know, it's going to take a long time and it's a lot of the same kind of thing. Anything you could pull out of there, again, it's going to be kind of a fascinating look back. If there are such things, it's going to be a fascinating look back at some of the bits of Hamilton. And even if it's not, I mean, when were these tracks laid? The, the ones that you've just discovered, how far back are we talking that these things would have been put in there? Um, I'm going to guess we're talking 1930-ish, somewhere in there. Yeah, so, so 100 years. years anyway. Yeah, 90 to 100 years. I mean, there's all kinds of things. I mean, just imagine if you paved over a road today and didn't completely clean it off, something might have, that someone might have dropped or whatever could be in there. They're very possible that something, just a simple thing, but that a flashback to a previous part of our history could be there, very possibly. Oh, Absolutely. That's a very cool, it's a very cool story. Now, where, if, are these, um, what is the status of these underground tracks right now? Are you just going to yank them out or do you just pave over them or work around them or what do you do? A little combination of everything. So we are going to remove what we need to remove, um, but they are essentially, they're embedded in about um, 20 inches of concrete or almost half a meter's worth of concrete. They're fully encased in their incredibly sound there's nothing wrong with them so when we do complete our resurfacing portion of, of sherman avenue we'll be taking off the layer that to just the top of the of the of the tracks there and whatnot and then just repave over sort of thing um it would be a huge undertaking to take that all out and essentially i mean we'll keep some of it for historical purposes maybe perhaps to go to a museum or whatnot but the balance of it would wind up going to a recycling facility which I mean, right now the road is perfectly sound. There's nothing wrong with it. I mean, everybody's been driving over them for X amount of years. So we're just going to leave them in place wherever we can. That is Dennis Parrison, Senior Project Manager, Subsurface LRT with the City of Hamilton. Dennis, thanks for this today. You're welcome. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Recent polls that have come out. Now, we don't have an election coming up for a while, but Main Street Research did a federal voting intention poll. Conservatives up by 14 points. Angus Reid, 11 points for the Conservatives. Abacus, 14 points for the Conservatives. Nanos, 11. Leger, 12. Ecos, 19. Ipsos, 9. You get the gist of what's going on here. Things are not glorious for the federal liberals right now. Question is, does any of this matter? Because we don't have to go to the polls for well over another year, well over another year, which is an awfully long time, it would seem, in politics. Henry Jasek is a professor of political science at McMaster, joins us now. Henry, thanks for this today. My pleasure. Well, what about this? If you are the liberals, are you in your back war rooms panicking about this right now, or are you completely letting it run off your back like water off a duck's back and go, who cares? It's a long time away. Well, I think they have a plan. They have to have a plan. I mean, they're smart enough to know they have to have a plan to deal with the numbers. And uh, clearly the numbers that are what's driving those numbers is the high inflation that we've had. And he's got to what essentially I think Trudeau has to do is over the next year, he's got to get the inflation down to about 2 percent. 
So if these numbers were next October, then I really would see them panicking. But they've got to have a plan to get it down. A year is a long time. Actually, the trend is to go down economically. So can they do it? And if they can get that stable by this time next year, I think people will tend to forget you know, what they went through if they have, uh, you know, uh, from this point on to the next election, they'll they'll tend to forget what went wrong. Yeah, the, the one thing to that point that I do wonder about, and I don't know the answer to this, is do you get to a point where people have just made up their minds and it's got nothing necessarily to do with the economy or anything? They've Is there a point at which a leader's best before date has simply expired and nothing you do is going to change people's minds? That can, especially if it uh, the person's integrity has, uh, you know, really they have had a lot, you know, uh, they have, uh, you know, not shown that they have integrity, and people believe that that's hard to do. Really, what Trudeau's problems really are now is he's not he's not uh, governing the country, especially the economy, the way he's supposed to. So that can be managed. Uh, but uh, and, well, we have a good example at uh, the last provincial election. If you looked at the year before the last provincial election, we had Doug Ford was down to you know 32 percent of, of 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 support, which would have been given him a minority, and I'm sure the opposition parties would have tossed him out because you know they wouldn't let him have a minority. But if you look, so you look at that, and then you look, he went into, they had a plan. They put it into operation beginning in February. It went right through to the election day, which is early March. It was a brilliant plan, and all and people had forgiven for it, all sorts of things by the time they went to the, uh, to the uh, ballot box. So, you know, it can be done if you have, you have a good plan and you have the ability to essentially put it into action. And uh, and also that, you know, it also helps if your opposition people don't have a, pro- a proper plan. And uh, in, the, in this case, I would say I would worry about the conservatives, you know, essentially running everything on the economy and inflation, because if inflation does go down over the next year, boom, his he's lost his, uh, his uh, you know, uh, they've lost their ability to... Uh, keep people happy with the conservatives and angry at the at the liberals so it's uh, they haven't been able to really to touch his integrity his ability to run a good campaign uh all of that he has that if he but what what they what they need to hope what the conservatives need to hope is he can't manage the economy uh for the next few years and uh We'll have to see what'll happen there. Well, one of the other things that I that I do what I have wondered about for a while now is so much of what has been going on right now, especially with the conservatives and Pierre Polyev, is directed towards Justin Trudeau, and even like the catchphrases and everything else is about that. If the day comes that you know the cliche that he takes the walk in the snow like his mm-hmm. father. And all of a sudden it is Mark Carney or Christian Freeland or someone else. How much does that yank the rug out from under the conservatives entire platform right now? Does that change everything? Well, the problem is, is, you know, if he, if, if Trudeau is the best, you know, leader, I think they can get right now. I don't know who else would be a very good, a better leader than Trudeau and to deal with this problem. I don't think anybody else would have the credibility. I think he's the, their best bet. He's obviously, he's got to, he's got to perform on the economic side, but he's the best bet they have. And uh, certainly if I was a, you know, liberal, I'd stick with him uh, because he's shown in the past that, uh, 
he can you know he can get elected and maybe only with a minority government but three times he can get he's gotten elected and you know it generally in politics you sort of go with the person who's been a winner in the past one of the other things is again if i'm pierre polyev do i worry that i may have peaked too soon i mean they, these are fantastic numbers if there's an election in a month yeah. But it's not a month from now. Do you right. worry that this is the high point? Well, the thing is, I mean, the conservatives would have to say really give the impression that they're that they're you know that there's something better personally about their leader compared to Trudeau. That that I think they would have to do, and I haven't seen they found anything that sticks to Trudeau, where people would say, uh, "I can't vote for him for uh, again because he's uh, he's got this personal flaw or that personal flaw." You know, he sure, certainly, yeah, he's made mistakes and he had some flaws, but they're you know they, they haven't really stuck. So I you know they they need to do that. But when you're when you're uh, you know basically running on uh, the the economy and you've got Almost two years. We're all, you know, it's all, it's going to be probably next September or next October or two years from now. You're, it's going to be, it's, it's going to be hard to, you know, to, to, you know, you have to depend on the inflation continuing mm. for, you know, right to that period. And if it's, I say, if it's down to two percent at this time of this year, and it's going to stay there, I would say, boom, you know, it's the conservatives who would start worrying because then they have to come up with something else. They have to come up with, you know, some issue or some uh, personality, uh, you know, trait that the people say, okay, we don't want them. But uh, I don't see that at this point. So, uh, yeah, so we've got a long way to go. It is a long way. It is. It is. And and I think essentially the, you know, the, the liberals, I'm sure, have a lot of good, you know, I think people understand, of all parties understand, is that you have to have an issue that is salient to the pub, pub, uh, population in in the months uh, and uh, and in the month before the election. Yeah, you can't beat you know you can't beat the the um, you know somebody who is trying to you know uh, hit a grand slam out of you know uh, uh, you know a month or two uh, sorry a year or two before the election. You have that does that doesn't work. That yeah, you, policy you... at the end of the campaign it's not a good. Good, you know, two two years out. You cannot win an election two years out. That is absolutely for sure. Henry Jasek, professor of political science at McMaster. Thanks for this, as always. Okay. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. If I were to show you a story, if I was to send you a link to a story online, didn't necessarily have a name of what paper or media site, just a story. Do you believe that you would be able to discern whether that story was real or fake news or be created by artificial intelligence. Do you believe that there are cues or hints or things that you would perk up to that you would say, yeah, I think I can tell the difference. The reason I ask you this is because most Canadians, according to a new poll, believe they have encountered misleading content created by artificial intelligence recently but most don't believe they are qualified or likely to be able to discern the difference between real and fake. John Wright is executive vice president of Maru Public Opinion. They're the ones who did the research for the Canadian Journalism Foundation. Joins me now. John, how are you today? Good. 
Thank you, Tom. I am not even remotely surprised that this is becoming a huge problem for people, even people who I think are not willing to believe everything they see just because they see it. I think this is becoming a massive problem that's creating doubt in people, and they're not sure what they're supposed to believe now. And and I think it's only going to get worse. You agree? Yeah, I think it is. And you know what? It's not just intergenerational where we see, you know, older people encountering it even more than younger people. It's actually the reverse where you've got seven in 10 young people because they're online all the time, or at least my Gen Z kids are, and they're encountering this. Seven in 10 of those have encountered, they believe, some kind of fake stuff over the last period of time. And then you take a look and ask people whether they're confident, whether they can actually discern whether it's fake or not. My goodness, even four in 10 of those kids versus the rest of us who are around 49% can't really be confident that we're telling the difference between what's real and what's not. So if you're in journalism or if you're following issues like the Middle East, if you are just trying to find out information online nowadays, it's going to be tougher going forward because of all the advances that AI is bringing to the table. Are we talking, when you did this poll, are you talking only about news stories or are you talking about videos or audio that people are hearing also that can be artificial intelligence and artificial intelligence and not accurate? We were talking generally. We weren't specifically talking about media stories. This is just, you know, trying to get a benchmark of where people are getting their information from and whether they believe it's right or wrong. So we're talking about online social media. And this poll was only done in the last two weeks. Not like it was done in the can a month ago. So we are, you know, what astonished me as well. Let me give you two other pieces of this. When we ask people whether they know of people within their own circles who are using AI right now, trying it out, and that means creating their own content, which could be voice or or otherwise, 53% of those who are between uh, the ages of 15 and 26 said that that was the case. So that's half of those people who are the Gen Z thing. So, and 50% of them are actually working with that uh, AI uh, competency themselves. I mean, it gets much less for those people who are younger, but they're not only encountering it more often, but they're now producing an enormous amount. And I'm not sure that they fully understand the implications of what they're putting out there for other people. Well, no, and let me take a second here just to tell a story. So I went to speak at a class one time and the assignment the teacher, the professor had given before I came to speak was they had to write two paragraphs about me based on what they could find. And when I got there, it was amazing because other people, I guess, have my name or whatever. You start researching around online and there was some amazing stuff that I learned about myself that, (laughs) that wasn't remotely true. But the reason I mention this is AI, when it's grabbing stuff off the internet to write stories, it's not got the discernment or the ability to discern what is actually true. It's grabbing all kinds of stuff. The chances of wrong information landing in a story that may sound, if you read it, very well written, the chances is are incredibly high of bad information being in there still. Sure, and we're still in our infancy stage, but let me give you a direct example, because I do have a Gen Z kid who, well, he's not a kid anymore, he's a a young adult, but he's graduating from Dalhousie uh, this coming spring. He's on a work term right now. He's been eight months in Toronto. He's been at an AI development company, so that's really close to home. I come downstairs about a month or so ago, and as I walk into the living room, all of a sudden I hear my voice, my voice talking about a whole bunch of stuff I've never done, and I think 
some of it was, uh, well, a little colorful. I, I look on the couch and he's got a big Cheshire cat smile on his face. He, he'd heard me on uh, and seen me on CP24 earlier that day. He grabbed my voice, stuck it into a bunch of stuff and played it back. I could not tell the difference. And I just said to him, do you understand how dangerous this can be? Yeah. And he kind of laughed it off saying, you know, we'll be able to tell the difference. The reality is you can't tell the difference. And this is the stuff that is really going to make a huge uh, issue. We're going to have to depend on media like yourself who have credibility and we're going to have to generate going to those places as opposed to simply generating AI and, and trying to rely on its uh, uh, veracity. Oh, you, you, and the example you just gave is the, uh, I think, is the horrendous worst case scenario. Imagine right now with what's going on in the world, if we suddenly saw a video or heard audio of Benjamin Netanyahu saying we are going to drop a nuclear bomb on Gaza. And it looked accurate. It sounded accurate. By the time people could respond, who knows what happens in the world as people respond to this, because you have to respond immediately. I mean, the, the, the pos and the, I, hopefully, you know, I'm touching wood right now. That is not something that could happen, but it's very easy to see how these new technologies could be going into a whole dangerous direction. Well, and you know what? The other night I was, uh, like everybody else, following uh, you know what's happening in the Middle East on on um, on my phone, watching it, and then up popped this thing saying that the Israelis have a new Iron Dome uh, way of uh, shooting down the missiles, but they're using a laser. And they were saying this is uh, this is just being used, and here's what it looks like. And I turned to my wife and I said, "My God, look at this! It's incredible." And my son, who came in the room, he said, "What is it?" And I showed it to me. He said, "Well, that's a game from a couple of years ago. I know exactly where mm-hmm. that is." Here we are, right there in that very instance. If it hadn't been for the acid test of having him experience it, I would have thought that it was absolutely real. So but you are not. Right. This is, but you are not a gullible idiot. Uh, you and so, no. like, if you could be, if you could be fooled by this, or if you could catch yourself not using your absolute discernment in a moment of weakness, what about everyone else? I mean, it's 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 really a challenge now. Well, look at it this way. I'm this year. I'm 66 years of age. I've been doing polling for 35 years. I've been doing public affairs for 42 years, and there I am following what's going on in the world. And I immediately jumped to the conclusion that this was real based on what I had seen before. So for those, it's not just an age issue. As I said, we have got young people here. 69% of them who believe that they have encountered fake stuff over the last period of time, and four in ten of them can't be confident that they can discern the difference between it. So this is going to be a landscape which is going to test the credibility Mm. not only of information, but of media sources and journalists themselves. And the more credibility that that source can have, the more people like us can gravitate towards us. But my goodness, what an explosion in technology that we're all going to have to deal with over the next decade. John Wright, Executive VP of Meru Public Opinion. Really appreciate you doing this today. Thank you. My pleasure. We're going to continue the conversation, but changed up a little. Carmi Levy is a tech analyst and writer. Uh, We've been talking about AI and the ability people have or don't have to distinguish what's real and what isn't. And Carmi, this is, uh, when I started talking to John Wright from Meru Public Opinion just a moment ago, the first question I think I asked him was, this is not at all surprising. I'm not shocked that people are having a hard time with this now, are you? 
I'm not either. I mean, just a few months ago, there was the case of uh, a picture of the Pope wearing a white puffy jacket, and it went viral over the weekend. And it, it just took a few hours. Next thing you know, it was showing up in everybody's inbox, and everyone thought, how cool it is that the Pope is wearing a fashionable white puffy jacket he'd look at home on the runway. And then, of course, it soon became apparent that this photo wasn't real. It never actually happened. It was the creation of a of an image generator powered by AI. Uh, and uh, it showed just how easily it was an innocuous example. I mean, it's just the Pope. No one was harmed. It, it's not like democracy was toppling because of it. <laughs> but it showed just how easy something that isn't real could be perceived by millions of people in no time at all as real. And so this time it was the Pope. Another time it could be something else. It could be an image that can sway an election, that can cause a riot, can do all sorts of pretty scary things that can undermine democracy, undermine the order of society, because no one can tell the difference between truth and untruth. It's incredibly frightening. And yeah, this data kind of confirms what we long suspected, but staring at it in the cold light of day, it's pretty frightening. All right. So what you just said, we were before the break, we were saying as an example, like the worst case example is there is a artificial intelligence computer generated video or audio of Benjamin Netanyahu saying that they're going to do something to Gaza or, or Iran and Iran responds because they've heard this. Now, I mean, you can just, you can let your imagination run wild. We don't even have to, as you say, go that far. Just imagine if a week before an election in Canada, the States, wherever else, a video emerges of a candidate saying something wildly racist. And then by Mm -hmm. the time we figure out that, oh, you know what? That actually isn't real. A whole bunch of people, first of all, will still believe that it is. And the other half, it may be too late to undo the damage. This is, this has got potential to do great things, but it's got a lot of potential to do some horrible things too. It absolutely does, because once an untruth gets out there, uh, you know, by the time that you're, you know, as you said, by the time that truth, uh, you know, oh, sorry, it was wrong. Well, you know, half the world has already decided and there's really no going back on it. Uh, And that's what's frightening here is that we have these these AI tools that right now are in their early stage of development. They will get better. The differences between high fidelity and low fidelity, you know, between our ability to discern truth from untruth is only going to get harder with time. And we're barely at the halfway point now. So, yeah. you know, so no, it's, you're right. it's only going to get worse, right? And, we're, and we're, we're, we're behind the eight ball and, uh, and that curve is getting steeper. And if we need an example of what you just said about the time it takes to undo something, we have a real life example. Now it wasn't artificial intelligence, but the story from last week about the alleged Israeli air raid that blew up a Gaza Mm -hmm. hospital. How long did that take? Three, four, five days to completely untangle that. And finally people to say that didn't happen. Yeah. It's, you know what, now you can fiddle around with artificial intelligence stuff and you could do that time after time after time and make things confusing for people. Exactly. And then you combine that with social media, which basically takes the content because the content, if, if all it's doing is sitting on a drive, it's not really doing much. But if you com- if you combine that weaponized content with social media, which has the ability to rocket it around the world uh, with viral algorithms that get it in front of millions of people before the truth can actually come out, 
now you've got, uh, you know, a hellish match made, you know, in a place I'd rather not talk mm. about. It's frightening um, because the tools are out there. There are really no controls over it. We keep seeing data that confirms, for example, that X, formerly Twitter, uh, is an incredibly efficient spreader of misinformation, particularly since the uh, the, the Israel-Hamas war erupted. Uh, and there are no laws requiring Elon Musk to behave. And clearly watching him uh, act as the head of this company. He's, in fact, spreading some of that misinformation, uh, happily sharing it in his own feed. So if the owner of the company uh, isn't playing by the rules and isn't being penalized, what hope is there for there to be a framework that can protect us all? Not a whole lot. Yeah, we got to run. But uh, Carmen, here's the thing. You are a uh, you would use you would be careful when you read stuff. I would be careful. Lots of people don't necessarily automatically believe everything they read. It is though, we got to run, but it is becoming harder to discern even if you are trying to be discerning. It is, the, the, the line is being blurred a lot more and, you know, there's a lot of great things that can come from AI. There's no question. There's a lot of positive things that can come from this, but boy, I... There's mm -hmm. always, uh, maybe it's just my personality, but I always think, okay, that's great. But what happens when it goes awry? Exactly. Right? Bottom line, we just have to lean in harder. We have greater accountabilities and we just got to try harder. I know it sounds trite, uh, but that can go a long way toward leveling the playing field and making sure that we're not as at risk as, as we think we are. Carmi Levy, always love having you on Tech Analyst. Thanks for doing this. Appreciate it, Scott. Thank you. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Don't know that my next guest ever walked into a ring to that music, although that would have been cool. But she did walk into a lot of rings. Uh, one... 33 professional boxing matches against three losses, eight championship belts she won, went on to fight in the Ultimate Fighting Championship and on the Ultimate Fighter reality TV show. And tomorrow, she is going to be one of five Hamiltonians being inducted into the Hamilton Sports Hall of Fame, along with Ticat owner Bob Young, legendary columnist Bob Hanley from The Spectator, Melissa Tancredi, the soccer star of... Team Canada's women's team for many years, and Ellison Kelly, the late Ticat great. Jessica Ricosi joins me now again, going into the Hall of Fame. Congratulations. Hi, Scott. Oh, thank you so much. I was laughing so hard with that music that you just played. Well, I, I'm surprised more boxers <laughs> don't use it, but maybe it's not really cool to pick up on Rocky. I don't know. I, I, I've seen it, but not too much. Is it uh, you, when you are fighting professionally and you're winning all kinds of championships and you're doing all the things that you did, does it? then matter? I know everyone's going to say it does, but does it really matter when you get into something like the Hamilton Sports Hall of Fame when, you're, when your hometown recognizes you? Oh my gosh, yeah. No, absolutely. It's um, like all years and all the sweat, blood and tears that you, you know, you sacrifice. And then to have something like that, especially in my hometown, it means everything to me. You, your career, because of the nature of women's fighting and where the fights were and where you could find work and everything, you were training for a lot of years in Vegas. You were fighting often in California. It was a long way away from home. Did you ever wonder when you were going through that, if people back home even knew what you were doing? Oh, definitely. Because especially women weren't really getting on TV. So I, the only way that they would actually know is when you would put it in the paper or my family was bragging. So that's hmm. really the only way anyone ever knew. Did that matter though to you? 
that people knew or was it like, oh, well, if they do, they do. If they don't, they don't. Did, did it matter to you that the people you grew up with or your friends or people that they knew what was going on? Oh, absolutely. It means everything because then that way you can, you get support and it, you feel like you, you're doing something and you're accomplishing something. And every athlete, and no matter what they say, if they say, no, it doesn't matter, it matters because that's what, you know, you're doing that for that success and for, you know, everyone to be proud. And especially I felt I wanted to do it to make my family proud, my friends proud. So it definitely meant everything to me that they were supportive and, and happy for me. I know you've said before that one of the, maybe your regret, maybe is one of the regrets, I don't know, is that there just wasn't a chance to fight ever at home in Hamilton. Did it ever come close? Was it ever nearly set up that you could have fought here? I tried really hard to actually do my own promotion and the managers that I was working with, they were trying to do it and they all struggled with the uh, Ontario Commission and that was where my, like, kind of my roadblock was. Otherwise, I would have tried to fight here all the time because that would have been my best fight. Doesn't matter if it was a title fight or anything, just fighting at home would mean everything to me. For many people, for many people who didn't necessarily keep up with your boxing career, you became known to them around here in particular when you went on the Ultimate Fighter, which for those who don't know, it's the Ultimate Fighting Championship. They have a reality show. And uh, turns out we had two Hamiltonians on that year. You and Josh yeah, Hill Josh, were yeah. both on at the same time. What was that experience like to go from not only changing sport, but suddenly from someone who may not have been all that recognizable in a lot of places to someone who everybody who was into combat sports all of a sudden recognized? Oh, absolutely. I felt like I was starting my career all over again. Like, and it was, it was very re-energizing and people really didn't know that I was a boxer unless they watched the show through in boxing. So a lot of people, and then it's like a lot younger people growing up, follow boxing was always like UFC and so it was a brand new kind of um, crowd that was watching it and, and kind of fans too. So it was pretty awesome. Ever? That was, that, no, no. Ever have any regrets that you didn't get into it sooner? Cause you really did take up MMA very late in your career. You had had a long career as a boxer. Do you ever wish, oh man, I wish I'd done it earlier or are you happy with the way it went? I wish I would have done it a lot earlier, but I think if I would have done it earlier, then that means you know, some of the things in my boxing career maybe wouldn't have happened. Yeah. And it's a, it's a tough sport to, the longevity is, is, isn't that great. So going in and I was already like damaged goods going in. So it's kind of, it was harder to keep that ball rolling. You, you, you say damaged goods. You've had oh, yeah. some, <laughs> you've had some stuff done to your body over the years from, from. Thank too much. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, to the point where you're you know, in your forties now, I don't think that you're going to kill me for saying that, but, um, no. it, does it, does it, do you feel it now when you get up or when you're oh, walking no, I around? It. I feel it all the time, every day, all day, and sort of like grab some aspirin and try to walk it off and you just suck it up like you always did when you're fighting and just keep on going. And now the job that I have is cool. So I'm still trying to keep up with the young kids and it's tough, but I, you know, you just got to suck it up and do it. Explain what your job is now. Cause it's very, it's a, it's a cool story how it came. We'll maybe hear about that another time, but, um, explain what you're doing now. 
Yeah. So actually, when I first came back to Canada, I'll make it really quick. So I know we don't have a lot of time. Um, Adrian Woolley, who is, um, he's an amazing fighter, like a UFC kind of fighter, uh, not boxing. And he, I met him when I moved back to Canada and he, uh, I didn't realize that he was a police officer. And after my last fight, which was a really bad fight, he was like, don't worry, I got you, I got your back, don't worry. And he helped me get into uh, Peel Regional Police. And I'm now an instructor for the police force. So it's it is. And, and one of the funny stories, and I know you told me about this one, but I'll let you share it, is that you you were at first you were doing prisoner transport and you, you had, you said somebody who was one of the prisoners recognize you from your time on the ultimate fighting, uh, the ultimate fighter. Uh, no, the, yeah. Nobody recognized me like for boxing, but a few of the prisoners, I was telling you, there was like about maybe seven or eight guys in this one bullpen. And they were like, you're the girl that fought on. And they knew my last name. They knew how to say my last name. And I was like, oh boy. But they weren't that like They're not, they weren't all terrible people. Not all of them were great, but they were just talking about fighting. And, and yeah, it was, it was kind of cool that they were saying that they were very supportive and they were um, proud of like the Hamiltonian and well, the Canadian girl in there. You know, the good thing about it is uh, none of them were going to do anything stupid, knowing <laughs> that you knew how to look after yourself and take yeah. them all down. That, uh, that, you know, that was a self-defense yeah. mechanism without having to do anything. Uh, tomorrow afternoon around noontime, uh, Jessica and Bob Young, Bob Hanley, Melissa Tancredi, Ellison Kelly will all be inducted in the class of 2023 into the Hamilton Sports Hall of Fame. Listen, congratulations. It's great. And I'm glad you're getting it. Thank you. Can I just say real quick, my, my cousin came down from South Carolina to, uh, to watch and to, to participate. And I just want to, his name's Jeff. And I just wanted to give him a shout out because I know they're listening and my aunt, Deb and uncle junior. So they're listening right now and they're like my biggest fan. So I just wanted to do that little shout out. Thank you. Perfect. We will, uh, we'll talk soon. Jessica Ricosi. Thanks for doing this. Thanks Scott. We have seen well, we haven't even, we, we can't count the number of posts that have been put on social media in the last week or two about what is happening over in Israel with Hamas. We've seen a, a local MPP get in all kinds of trouble for what was posted on social media. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. There are tons of other issues that people can post something on Twitter, post something on Instagram, post something on Facebook. And... Can they get in trouble for it? I mean, a lot of people, they put that little line that says my opinions or these opinions reflect only my views or these are, you know, don't reflect my work. Mm. Let me bring in Lior Samfiru. He's an employment lawyer, national co-managing partner of Samfiru Tumarkin LLP, uh, heading up the firm's labor and employment law group. Joins us now. Lior, thanks for doing this today. Thanks for having me on. That little line, before we get to everything else, people put that on their Twitter or somewhere else, the views are mine alone or don't reflect. Is that like a magic thing you can write and it eliminates any possibility of getting in trouble for anything you say? Absolutely not. It's a nice thought, but it does not really do anything. Uh, certainly, if you're posting on your own social media account, it's going to be assumed that it does are your views. But that does not insulate you from any liability as it relates to your workplace, to the extent that what you say does impact your colleagues, your workplace, your employer's reputation. Uh, it's not going to insulate you. So there's really no, no magic uh, to those words. <laughs> See, I thought it was a magic incantation. You just say it and then you're free to say whatever you like and there's no consequences for anything because it's just my views. 
No, wouldn't that be nice? It doesn't work that way. Words do matter, and there's no way to insulate you with that uh, magic incantation. Absolutely not. Okay, so we're using the example that, you know, we've been talking about Sarah Jamma. We've been using the example. There's so many things that have been written about what's happening in the Middle East. It's the hot button issue right now. So let's say I own a company and one of my employees says something that I don't agree with. Do I have the right to discipline, to demand they take it down, to fire? Like where, where is, what power or non-power do I have over my employees and their personal account if they say something I don't like? So the first thing to remember is if we're talking about the private sector, things such as freedom of expression don't apply. That applies only to government action. So an employer is able to decide what's appropriate and not appropriate within the context of the workplace. Now, an employer can always choose to let an employee go because of what they posted on social media, so long as they pay them their appropriate severance package. You know, there's various factors that go into that. Where it gets more interesting is, can the employer fire someone for cause, i.e. without any compensation or severance because of what they posted on social media? Well, that could happen in in a number of scenarios. Number one, if someone posts something that could be seen as threatening to certain people or or hate speech, and that's going to impact one's colleagues. You know, if you're posting something that certain people should be uh, should be killed, just as an extreme example, and you're working with other individuals, well, that's going to impact the workplace. And an employer in that situation will be well within their uh, right to let someone go. In another situation, maybe if you're working in a prominent role. In, within the company, you're uh, a CEO, an executive, someone that's directly identified with your employer. You have a greater responsibility in that type of role to be careful with what you say because invariably, and regardless of how you qualify it, those comments are going to be translated to your employer. And if it contradicts your employer's positions and your employer's views and their values, you absolutely can be disciplined for it. So Yes, there are circumstances where your own social media, your own views, you can be disciplined for, but you can always be let go with proper severance. Are we seeing more employers giving more leeway to employees today? Because look, everyone's got opinions on lots and we all have social media, so we all have the power to speak now. Or are we seeing employers saying more and more, please don't do this because we just, we don't want to be caught in the middle of a political firestorm. Yeah, it, it's certainly the latter, and, and it's that, that fear of insulting invariably one, uh, one side of the, uh, of the conflict or any conflict or the other. So I think employers generally are saying, just stay out of this. You know, there's various hot-button topics, and if you're going to upset half the population with a particular view, it's not worth doing. So I think it is a good idea for employers to implement policies uh, where employees become aware that whatever they say may impact their employer. And if what you're saying is something that is problematic, is something that's going to affect our businesses, you're saying something that's going to upset half the population and we're servicing that population, well, it's going to affect our business. So I think employers generally are are hoping and asking employees to avoid these hot button topics Mm. 
even if it's on the individual's uh, own social media. Yeah, well, I mean, one of the most prominent ones recently is Disney has found itself. I mean, Disney of all companies has found itself in a lot of trouble with a lot of people because a number of their employees have all of a sudden gotten political. And it's like, wait, this was supposed to be the company that you didn't think politics when you came to our parks or watched our movies. They're now backtracking or trying to, but you can see how it doesn't take much to get people's opinion of a company based on the comments of a few people to change. And once a company or individuals that work for a company post something, a company may feel compelled, if it doesn't agree with those statements, to post something on its own. And we can get into this cycle, uh, and, and which is why companies just don't want to have to go there. And especially if you're working with a company that is that really depends on the goodwill of the public. And if you're someone within that company that, you know, you're, 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 you have a, an important role, you carry some weight given your role, you have a responsibility and you can't say, well, I did this on the weekend at 9 PM on my own time, on my own social media. It doesn't work that way. Uh, it, it really is interconnected with your employer and your employer can expect that an employee is going to act in the employer's best interest at all times. Does it make a difference if you lay this out for employees when they are hired as opposed to later on? If, if part of your condition of work is, like, could you say, uh, I want you to come work for Sanfiru to Markin, but one of your conditions is no social media. Could you do that? You absolutely can. It's going to be very difficult to tell someone you can't use social media after the fact. Uh, very, very difficult. But if that's a term of employment, extreme as such that it is, and the employee accepts that uh, term, then there's nothing illegal about an agreement like that. And an employee that breaches that agreement and says, well, I'm going to use my social media in any event, can absolutely be disciplined and potentially even fired for cause. I, I, I can tell you, I haven't seen that necessarily happen. But I think in light of some of those issues that you brought up right at the beginning of our conversation, I can see employers doing that moving forward just simply saying, we just don't want to be in the situation where this becomes an issue. Uh, we, we don't want to have to worry about this. So maybe we can have employees that if they want to work here and we're going to put them in this important role, agree to just stay off social media. And you know, some people would say, uh, Lior, I think some people might say, well, that's going to really crack down on that person. I think there's a lot of people who would be relieved if they all of a sudden they could say, I can't do social media because my boss won't let me. I think there'd be people who would love that. I'm not surprised. There's an inherent pressure sometimes to post, to be involved, to make comments. And if you just don't have the ability to do that, or at least you can point a finger at someone and say, that's why I can't, it absolutely can be a relief. No, no doubt. That is Lior Sanfiru. Here's employment lawyer and national co-managing partner of Sanfiru Tumark. And really appreciate the time today. Thanks as always for doing this. Thanks for having me on. Yesterday was the 30th anniversary, stunning to think this, the 30th anniversary of Joe Carter hitting the touch them all Joe home run against the Philadelphia Phillies. Well, that was, that was an amazing moment. But go back one year earlier, 31 years ago today was the day the Blue Jays won their first World Series in Atlanta. And I know, see, it's almost, it goes without saying. It really does. If you were old enough to have been able to watch TV then and understand what was going on, you were watching that game. I can't believe there was a person in this area who was not watching that game 
some part of it that night. I was, I told the story last night on my show later on. I, I was talking about how we were, we were at a wedding that night, which we <laughs> bolted out of <laughs> as soon as we possibly could, along with everyone else to catch the last few innings. But there was, I mean, I can't believe it's 31 years, but there was nobody who was not watching this. And I'm, I'm, there's a video here, a short clip of the last out. Anyone remember? Remember who threw the ball, who th- got the out for the Jays? Mike Timlin. Remember Mike Timlin pitching, young guy, first year player, first year pitcher, reliever for the Jays. Got Otis Nixon on a drag bunt that Timlin fielded and threw to Joe Carter. That's right. Yeah, you knew that. I know you knew that. But it is, uh, every, that's the thing. Everybody who was, anyone who is, let's say 36, 37, 38 or older, who's listening knows and remembers that can probably tell you about parts of that series. It was the first time it was amazing. It was such a, well, anytime your team, I mean, we haven't been through this with the Leafs because. They just haven't been to a final since 1967. We have not, that very few people truly who are around today have experienced, fewer than half of Canadians have experienced the Maple Leafs, forget a championship win, being in a final. There are kids who are graduating university this year who were not born the last time the Ticats won a Grey Cup. Sorry, it's true. Maybe this year, doing it at home. I'm a prime example of this. 1999. So if you are 24 years old or younger, you have not even been alive for a Ticats Grey Cup. Now, most people will remember watching the Raptors. Maybe some of you watch TFC. Some of you will be going down to the Forge game, including Joanne, who won the tickets. Uh, And on Saturday, you may get a chance to witness that. But this was so new because it had been, don't forget, the Raptors hadn't happened yet. The Leafs were stuck in the doldrums. This was so brand new. It was such an amazing experience that, as I say, I think a lot of people who aren't even necessarily baseball fans, and again, this, I'm, this is on, it's on my computer right now on this, on a loop, watching over and over and over again, and you're seeing the players running out of the dugout. And I bet you that people who aren't even Blue Jay fans could watch this and go, oh, I know, I remember that guy, Derek Bell. Remember Derek Bell? Ed Sprague. Dave Steeb came out of retirement, basically, to come back and pitch on this team. Tom Henke was there. Dwayne Ward was there. Pat Borders was the playoff, was the World Series MVP. Jimmy Key. Dave Cohn started that game for the day. These are names, Tony Fernandez. I think Tony Fernandez was around then. No, Tony Fernandez had been traded for Alomar back then. He came back later, of course. But Alomar, Carter, all these guys, unbelievable. It's an unbelievable Dave Winfield. Unbelievable thing to think 31 years ago. This is the amazing part about when you have a time stamp of your life like this, a moment that you can clearly remember. And then you stop. I was doing this today and you stop and think, wait a second, where, where was I in my, forget the Blue Jays. This is, this is the, the sort of the moment that reminds you of, wow, it's been 31 years. Think about where you were in your life 31 years ago. Tom was just a glimmer in his father's eye at that point. Was I though? Well, was I really? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> I don't even think I was a thought at that point. Well, maybe not. But for many people, like I'm, I was looking back, my, my kids were not born 
at this point. I had, when, when I watch this, and again, it's, it's, it gives you a, a barometer or a, a place, a mile marker along the road of your life, not to be too deep or anything. I had no idea that I would end up having two kids. I had no idea who my kids would be, what they would become, what their names would be, whether they'd be a boy or girl, none of that. I, there are so many things you think of, I do anyway, when I watch something like this and I think, this is just that reminder of where I was in my life at that point. It was an amazing thing to experience and it's a lot of fun to look back on it. But my goodness, could you imagine if you knew then what you know now about your life? Can't, of course, but yeah, I just think about that stuff. That's me. That, that's just me. I, that's the stuff I think about when I see things like this is where was I, what was I doing? And man, could I ever have imagined that I would be doing today what I'm doing today back then? And the answer is no, and neither could anyone else have. I think a lot of people back then were like, yeah, you know what? I can see a future of welcome to Walmart. Would you like a bag with that? Things somehow worked out. I don't know. Just watch it again. There you go. Joe Carter jumping around, Mike Timlin jumping around. It's great, uh, great memory for those who remember that stuff. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. Thanks for being here today. Uh, thanks for joining us through the show today. If you were here all along, man, we appreciate that. If you just jumped in, we're glad you were here as well. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow. I am in for Scott Thompson all this week. Scott has once again, once again, Scott Thompson has picked a week for vacation where the weather is perfect. I don't know how this guy does it. There is not a weatherman in the world that has the track record of Scott Thompson taking weeks off that always, always, always seem to be perfect weather. Well, he'll be envying that Wednesday night and Thursday night and this weekend, possibly. Mm. So anyway, eh. I'll be here all week. We'll be here at three o'clock. Love for you to join us then or at any time through the show. Thank you to Tom for his great work on the board today, to Will for lining everything up, all of our amazing guests. Thank you for being here. And to you, we do appreciate it. We will talk to you at three o'clock tomorrow. Have yourself a great evening. Oh.